The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, reading verses 33 through 47, as we're coming to the conclusion of this great gospel that we've been studying the past few weeks. Mark 15, at verse 33, coming to the actual death of Jesus Christ and reading about his death and burial. I hope that as we read this, you would consider it with fresh eyes and a heart that would be open to meditate on the love of Christ revealed in his death for us. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. May God add his, re- his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. On August 21st, many of you know that there's going to be a rare celestial phenomenon observable in the northern hemisphere, a total eclipse of the sun. There's going to be this 67-mile-wide swath or path across the continental United States, kind of going from the northwest to the southeast. People are going to flock to all the towns and cities within this narrow belt to get to observe about two minutes of complete darkness 
at 11 o'clock or so in the morning. What does this event mean? It means the earth is exact, the moon is exactly between the sun and the earth. That's all that it means. It's a celestial phenomenon. It's interesting to see. We looked into getting a motel in Greenville, South Carolina, because our daughter and her family are going down there to see it with their special NASA glasses, but all the motels are booked. I guess we won't get to see it. And they even say that if you, if you locate somewhere out of the area, the roads may be so jammed going into the area the morning of the day that we might not even get there. So I guess we missed our chance. We didn't think about it in time. It'll be interesting to see, and scientists love it, of course, and plan to make scientific observations, but the meaning is not hidden. It's not profound or deep. But what can we say about the significance of these amazing events we read about in our gospel, in our text about the death of Jesus Christ? Before us this evening is probably the most vivid scene in all of Scripture. Here we are on a beautiful summer evening, and providentially, we are looking at it. We're used to studying it before Easter in Holy Week. But here is the most climactic moment of the Bible, along with the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the return of Christ, of course, would be added to that. And here we're told about a darkness in verse 33, from the sixth hour to the ninth, from noon until three o'clock. A darkness that was not an eclipse. Remember, Passover was the full moon. There can't be an eclipse then, if you know anything about the moon and the sun. It was a supernatural darkness brought on by God's power. We can't explain it. It reminds us of the darkness of the ninth plague in the book of Exodus. The ninth plague, you remember, preceded the tenth and last plague, the death of the firstborn. And here... Similarly, this supernatural darkness preceded the death of the firstborn, the ultimate firstborn, bearing the wrath of God, the darkness of God the Father turning his face away, in a sense, as the Son becomes sin, as the Son bears our sins. The opposite of the Christmas story, we think about that angelic announcement that there was brightness and singing at midnight. And now here there's deep darkness at noonday when the Son of God dies. What did this mean? It certainly means incredibly more than an eclipse means, doesn't it? There's a sense in which the depths of what this means are impenetrable about what Jesus did. There's like a veil is drawn over what it was like. Some of the authors that I read this past week or two talk about the anguish of his soul, the, the torment in a sense as he bears sin, as he's separated from the Father, bearing hell for us. But words begin to fail. Someone speaks of it being unfathomable. I can't say that word, so I didn't have it in my notes, but 
it's unable to be fathomed, to be understood. Yet, the Bible tells us the meaning. There is profound meaning, and we can understand as much as the Bible reveals about what happened. And the, the meaning is clear. So tonight, we want to think briefly about the significance of the death of Christ and the significance of this uh, sequence of events. First, let us see and consider that the significance is easily missed. Verses 35 and 36. Here is Jesus dying on the cross, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And apparently those at the foot of the cross totally missed what was going on. What was he saying? What was the meaning of all of this? And we find that some of the bystanders say, He's calling Elijah. Now, it's a natural mistake to make because probably Jesus used the word El for God, that beginning of the word Elijah, similar sounding words if he used the words of Psalm 22. But they think, okay, he's calling Elijah, and probably these were Jews who were thinking about this. They were the ones who would be thinking about Elijah, and Probably it was tied in with superstitions as well. But isn't it a stunning thing to think about? Here they were literally at the foot of the cross, possibly knowing pretty much about Jesus' life and ministry, what he had taught, who he said he was, what he had claimed. Certainly there was a lot of talk about that at this time in Jerusalem. Probably they would have heard Isaiah 53 being read in the synagogues over the years. And they have no understanding. Their hearts are in darkness. They don't see. And it's not just a lack of data, because we know that for the natural man, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. We know from 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so there was this veil over their eyes. And we have to think, how many are there who sit in church week after week and who hear the gospel preached, but there's a veil over their eyes and they have not understood what this is all about and how it bears on their lives. This is the great tragedy of people who sit in church week after week and yet do not understand the meaning. Not long after his conversion, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preeminent physician as a 20-something-year-old man, he writes about celebrating a Christmas Eve with family and friends And uh, the family gathering takes place in a living room in a home. And he raises the question. He throws out the question to everyone there in the room. Why did Jesus Christ come? Why was he born? And it's interesting because here you are in the 1920s when the majority of people in England are churched. They go to church at least somewhat regularly. And they've heard the gospel in different ways. They've heard the Bible being read. And here, Martin Lloyd-Jones hears this interaction and this reply and gets all these responses from people who've been sitting in church about, he came to bring peace, he came to give us a good example. Not one told 
the biblical reason for why Jesus Christ came, to live under the law, to be our perfect substitute, and to die for us. And so after that idea has been tossed around for a while about why Jesus came, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the people in the room why he now understands why Jesus Christ came. Two particular aspects of their blindness are revealed here. One is superstition, uh, an awareness, we would say, of the supernatural, but not connected to truth. Um, it's so rampant in our world today. There's all kinds of soap superstitions out there. I, I've heard it said that when the real estate crash of 2008 took place, the statues of Joseph of Arimathea, the patron saint of real estate, sold off the shelves because people wanted to make sure that their houses sold. So there's this supernatural, strange connection to truth that is mostly superstition. And then there's the blindness of vain curiosity. We see that in verse 36 with them deciding to, to give Jesus a drink or to, to try to give him a drink. And they say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They're looking for something dramatic, for a show of some kind. God may use curiosity as a first step, but our empty curiosity is so vain, isn't it? The entertainment mindset, and this is even seeped into churches of our day, that people come to church, but it's, it's often not with a sense of gravity and seriousness. The Son of God slain for sinners As someone has put it, well, I am a dying man preaching to dying men. That's how serious what we're doing here right now is. Here at the foot of the cross, there are people who are just looking at this as an entertainment in a sense. Luke records that apparently... The, the multitudes were struck because in Luke twenty three forty eight, Luke tells us that the crowds returned home beating their breasts. Just wonder, did that signify some sense of a conviction of sin? Did it signify something about what was this darkness? What could this mean? Did they see something of the true meaning of this? Well, thus we see that The significance is not understood by the natural man. But secondly, let us learn the significance of Jesus' death displayed. And we see that in the darkness, of course, because we know that it signifies the enduring of hell for us. And we find in verses 37 and 38 more data about this. Jesus, in verse 37, utters a loud cry and breathed his last And we know from putting together the various gospel accounts that after his cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out two other things in a loud voice, maybe back to back. He cries out the one word, it is finished. And then he cries out again with a loud voice, into your hand, I commit my spirit. And then Mark records for us, he breathed his last. It's interesting that none of the gospel accounts at this point, say Jesus died. They all say he breathed his last. 
the epistles will talk about the death of Jesus Christ, speaking about the entire nature of his death and what the meaning of his work on the cross was. But here the gospel narratives, all the ones who say anything, say he breathed his last because I think they're emphasizing the fact that Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. And after he had announced it is finished, and in the words of of the psalm that many Jews used as a bedtime, nighttime prayer to commit their spirit to the Lord as they went to sleep, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, Jesus voluntarily breathed his last. That's the sense of it. And then there's this amazing verse, 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I want us to stop and ponder this. Think about this. Here is the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant is and the mercy seat on top of it and the cherubim overshadowing it, this amazing place in the temple of God which was inaccessible to everyone except the high priest. And only once a year could the high priest go in with sacrifice, separated from the holy place with this dazzling, strong curtain. Sometimes it's said that this curtain was up to a foot in thickness, woven in places with gold, this curtain that hung there. But this curtain is torn from the top to the bottom. Interesting, not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. This curtain was like a giant no trespassing sign. Do not enter. Only the high priest, only once a year, only with sacrifice, showing the lack of our access to God, the problem due to our sin. And here it's torn. Clearly, a demonstration. God is showing forth unmistakably what is happening. There is being opened access to God through the death of the Lamb of God. Hebrews chapter 6 says, we have this as a sure and certain anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's reference to this same curtain. We have this hope where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's talking about Jesus, our high priest, going in behind the curtain as he died on the cross and as he rose again and as he ascended. And then in chapter Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20, we're given this exhortation. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A way has been opened. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. God the Father is declaring that the work of Christ is complete, that Jesus has opened the curtain. It's likely that this verse is the climax of Mark's gospel. If you go back to chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but in verse 10, when Jesus is baptized, he saw the heavens being torn open. Same word as verse 38 of our text. 
the only two places in the Gospel of Mark where that word is used. The heavens are torn open when Jesus is baptized, and now the curtain is torn open. All through the Gospel of Mark, we've wondered, who is this? And Mark is showing us through the Gospel account, who is this man, the God-man? What is the purpose? What has he come to do? He's come to die. We see the Mark moving that way, and then Jesus going to the cross, and now climactically, it is finished. The meaning of the cross was being clearly displayed, a visual display of the access to God being open to us. And so, There are so many New Testament verses that speak of us being in Christ. And, for example, Ephesians 2, 6, we've been raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. Or Colossians 3, 3, you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Or Hebrews 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse after verse after verse speaks that we are in Christ We are in the heavenlies with him. Our lives are with him. The Bible is speaking of a present reality for the Christian. Often we read verses like that, and don't they seem abstract? My life is hidden with Christ in God. I've died and been raised with Christ. I'm seated with him. But now it's time to take out the trash. That's how our lives are, isn't it? You can be physically present but mentally be somewhere else. In our family, when we go to Texas, which Michael mentioned this morning, sometimes our adult children can't come. Stephen and his family aren't going to come. But, you know, they'll be with us in spirit. And if we, if we find a, a place, a time to call them and, and give them an update on what the whole family's doing and they're going to be envious and wishing they were down there, they're going to say, like, have you been to Leo's yet? Did you get Mexican food? Oh, yes. Hey, did you get to the Arrowhead Creek? Did anybody find any arrowheads? Oh, yeah. You know, so-and-so found an arrowhead. Oh, did you do a star party at the trailer and see all the shooting stars in the sky that's so dark down there? You know, they're go- Stephen and his family will be with us in spirit, even though they're not physically there. You know, we're used to that idea. Well, in an even greater way, this passage is speaking and showing us that our great high priest has entered the holy of holies, and your life is there. Physically, you are here, but spiritually, you are with Jesus. And the earthly temple symbolized the heavenly, that now there is access to God. You are there with Christ. That is what is being displayed as Christ breathed his last and the curtain was torn open. You're in Christ. And how that impacts your daily life, how that impacts your praying life that you are in Christ, and when you pray, your prayers are there in Christ, that it impacts our corporate worship, that this humble gathering of folks that no one takes note of, really, on a Sunday night, that this becomes the very throne room of the God of the universe as we meet with our God. This impacts your hospital bed, where you might be getting dire news this week, one of us might be, and and. The Lord tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with us. We are in him. It impacts our lives. There is meaning in the death of Christ. 
that Scripture declares. But finally, let us think about the meaning declared. Here we see this in the remainder of our text. We see in verse 39, the centurion, the verse about him, who stood facing Christ and saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the centurion that has been with Jesus from the praetorium, seeing him beaten and seeing the crown of thorns pressed on his brow, and then seeing him walking in the Via Dolorosa, and then somebody carrying his cross for him part of the way, and seeing him put on the cross and the nails going into his flesh. And he's startled at Christ's final cry, these loud loud cries as he says, finished, and Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. This man was from a pagan background, no doubt, and he had seen many people die, and he knew that when people died of crucifixion, they didn't have power to cry out with a loud voice. There was something very unusual, and hearing what this man said, we don't know the state of his heart, but he knew something was very different. And here we have his his confession of faith. This man was the Son of God. This is a question that throughout Mark's Gospels being set forth. Is Jesus, who is he? Is he just a man? Is he one of the prophets? Is he John the Baptist returned from the dead? Is he Elijah? And the answer, no, he's more than all that. And as C.S. Lewis says, the question in our day is, is he a lunatic or a liar? You have to either say he's one of those two or he's the Lord of glory. Here the answer is, he is the Son of God. This really makes the point that God is at work. Even in the death of Christ, even at the foot of the cross with this pagan centurion, God was at work opening minds and hearts We can know the meaning of Jesus' death. However much the centurion knew, he knew something. And that word comes to you and to me. We cannot be neutral about Jesus and his death and resurrection. You might be saying to yourself, young folks especially tend to do this. They think, I'm going to postpone coming to grips with the gospel. I'm going to put off coming to grips with the call of the gospel Uh, I'm going to postpone doing business with God about my soul because maybe I want to do these other things first. Or I don't really want to submit my life to Christ. I want you to realize that if you're telling yourself that, you must realize you are already making a decision because you cannot be neutral. You cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. You are either for him or against him. You are either trusting in him and giving him your life and submitting to him as your Lord and Savior, or you are holding him at arm's length and saying, I will not have this man to rule over me. The meaning is declared by the centurion, and it's declared by the women as well. In verses 40 and 41, we see this description of Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and other women who were there looking on from a distance. Peter was the eyewitness who was largely behind Mark's gospel. But you know, Peter wasn't at the cross. He had denied the Lord, and it's unlikely that he was here. We have these details primarily from 
the women, it's possible that only John alone was one of the apostles who was at the cross. We don't know for sure. The women are the eyewitnesses here. Last at the cross, first at the tomb, first to see the women, the risen Lord, the women bear testimony of the resurrection and of the death of Christ. And remember, when they came to the disciples with the resurrection testimony, they saw these things as idle tales. Men, isn't that a rebuke to our chauvinism? Isn't that a rebuke to husbands who fail to listen carefully and lovingly to their wives? Isn't that a rebuke to pastors and leaders in the church who fail to listen to women in the church? Here is the cross, the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head, and these women are bearing witness to it and testifying to us. And again, the question comes, do you listen to their testimony about Jesus Christ, to these witnesses? And then we have further witnesses that Jesus' death was truly a death And I'm not going to go into it in depth, but in verses 42 to 46, we see this description of of Joseph of Arimathea coming and courageously asking Pilate for the body, something that he risked a lot with Pilate, possibly charging him with collusion in some way. And then he risked his place in the Sanhedrin because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He he counted it as something that he counted his, his life being at stake here, and he went and asked Pilate for the body. But it's interesting, Pilate was surprised. And here we have this interesting documentation about the truthfulness that Jesus fully died because Pilate knew that he was sitting on a political powder keg, that if he would somehow let Jesus be taken down from the cross and not dead and he would somehow reappear, boy, would the Sanhedrin be angry at him then. So he had to verify, and so he asked the centurion to make sure, and the centurion, who had overseen many crucifixions, verified this body was a corpse. Notice the Scripture uses the word corpse. Verse 45, it's not a word that we like to use. It's not something that we like to think about. All the pop ideas about the swoon theory, as it's called, that Jesus didn't really die, that he just swooned, that he passed out, that he wasn't really dead, and so it wasn't a real resurrection from the dead. All those things are utterly false. Pilate, a pagan man, the centurion, they verified this. They were sure that Jesus was dead. Jesus truly died. This is a fact of history. And Jesus truly rose bodily from the dead. We have the witness of the centurion, the women, even Pilate and the centurion bear witness to the truth that Jesus died. And next week we'll see that Jesus rose from the dead as well, a truth that all of you have heard. Have you received this living and reigning Savior and Lord by faith? Have you put your trust in him? If not, may this vivid scene of Jesus' death, as you've heard it afresh, as you've thought about it, may this be a springboard for you if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ. Before the sun sets, before another day goes by, may you seek him and may you find him by God's grace.
Amen. Father, we thank you for the life, the access, the eternal blessedness of what the death of Christ opened up for us, sinners by nature. Thank you for the new and living way opened by Jesus behind the curtain into the access of the throne room of grace of God. O Lord, let us live there this week as we know that we are in Christ. And if there is anyone here who hasn't trusted you, may they seek you while you may be found. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.